Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I don't want to make empty promises to, to the residents of Illinois without identifying what the issues are. Whatever, Richard Irvin. All right, your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, February 24th is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Oh, studio audience likes that. Oh, all right. The audience love this too. Can we keep we giving some kind of refreshments or something? Today? Never. All right. Uh, all right. Chicago Reader, <laughs> ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J O R A V is in victory, S K Y. It is Thursday, February 24th. And this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, we welcome back Lakeisha Collins and, well, we welcome back Miles Camp Lassen. And now your host, yes, we welcome back Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Yeah, hello everybody, Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this No Swear Thursday, and here's why. Because no swearing in today's show. That's a proclamation I've made after Dennis told me the show is the one that's going to drop on Lumpen. So I'm just saying that as a way to remind myself. Okay? I'm going to be a good citizen. we got to keep this one clean. Oh, he, he actually had Adolfo Madragon booked for today. And I'm like, dude, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Adolfo has been known to swear uh, every now and then. Adolfo has been known to drop that F-bomb. Yes, indeed. All right. No swearing on this show today. A little shout out to Jamie over at uh, Lumpen Radio. Apparently, he's been appointed by Mayor Lori Lightfoot to sit on a special committee uh, that's going to uh, take a look at all the candidates uh, who want to be alderman or alderwoman of the 11th Ward. Now that uh, Alderman Patrick Daly Thompson uh, has been forced to step down because of his conviction in a federal tax fraud case. So, uh, Jamie, good luck with that position. And in your honor, we're not going to swear today. I'm happy to bring on my first guest, Lakeisha Collins, State Representative Lakeisha Collins, pride and joy on the west side of Chicago. And she's been so kind to interrupt a very busy day uh, in Springfield. She got, I know, Lakeisha, you got to get to uh, introducing a bill. But I yes. really wanted to hear from you. Uh, we've been talking about you and thinking about you and... Um, on your side totally on this one this is just ben speaking uh i have my opinion so i'm allowed to express them a showdown that was i thought was completely unnecessarily necessary that took place last week that just kind of exposed the rudeness of uh the republican party in this era of trump and maga uh so lakeisha why don't you just start uh by reminding folks of what went down last thursday i think it was i've lost track of time uh, the 17th of february uh, so take us through uh, what went down when you rose to uh, inter- offer up 
uh, resolution uh, requiring people, uh, reps, to keep their masks on. Take it away. Yeah, so the... So this happened on Tuesday of last week where I rose to the floor and I asked if, you know, members on the right side of the aisle were to follow the House rule. And so for people that don't understand, um, we make rules at the beginning of every general uh, assembly and we have to follow them in the chamber. And this was one of those rules. And so um, nothing happened that day. So then Wednesday, I called a motion to enforce the rules. And I ended up withdrawing that motion because we weren't really getting work done because they were slowing down the process. And this is deadline week. And so deadline week means that we have to get our bills read in committees, get them out so that we can read them for a third time on the floor. And um, that was their goal was to slow down the process. And so when Thursday uh, came, I called the motion again because I'm like, we can't go another day with slowing down this process. We took the vote. They decided they wanted to debate me. Um, the debate got really heated. And then after the debate, um, we, you know, we voted and, you know, members, you know, um, voted to remove the nine members in question, remove them from the chamber. And one of the members, I was not aware at the time that he had put his mask back on. Um, and so he approached me after we came back from our different breaks from caucus. And he approached me, I'm five foot three. He's like six, 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 seven. He um, leaned over me and he, he said, keep my name out your mouth. Mm -hmm. And so I thought he was joking at first, right? And then he pointed his hand really closely to my face and was like, keep my effing name out your mouth. And so at that point, we had um, two members of the Black Caucus who jumped in immediately. And as they were trying to pull him away, he was hesitant. And so I did feel threatened at that moment because I'm like, if they were not here, what would you have done? I don't know you. You don't know me. And I mean, we can debate all day. We can agree to disagree, but it gives you no right to do that to a fellow co-worker or colleague, um, whether it's in the chamber or outside of the chamber. It should never result to you making someone feel uncomfortable or threaten them um, about a simple, you know, rule that I was trying to enforce. And so he, um, like right after that, 10 minutes later, he tried to apologize, but I wouldn't take it because I felt like, you know, you did what you did and you only apologize because someone told you to apologize. You didn't do it because you were sincere about it, right? And um, I didn't accept it at that time. But since then, you know, we made statements on the floor. Um, this, this Tuesday, we made some statements on the floor about the apology and um i don't know how the folks took the apology but i know for me uh to get things you know to put things behind me and to continue to continue the work that we are doing um i want to continue to tell the story because black women in these spaces are not protected we're considered angry black women when we speak up sometimes we're told to you know turn the other cheek um, you're difficult to work with, and that's not the case. You have someone who clearly had an issue because this wasn't the first incident he had. I read in the paper there was something that happened in 2019 where he had to apologize to a colleague, right? And so this type of behavior can't go unchecked, you know? Yeah. 
So uh, just for the record, the the legislator in question is a representative, Steve Reich. He's a Republican uh, from Woodstock, which is a community north of Chicago. It's about pretty much all I know about the geography uh, outside of Chicago. I confess, MAGA listeners, I really uh, am weak when it comes to out of Chicago apology, although I do know the suburb of Evanston. All right. Uh, so his explanation was that uh, he was offended uh, by him being put uh, into the list of people who were uh, uh, wearing, um, uh, were not wearing a mask because he was at the time wearing a mask. Uh, and he said, because I'm also a rules guy, uh, he, was, uh, he wasn't going to ignore the, the mask man right. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm just not. I'm big, I'm loud, sometimes I'm profane, but I'm not that kind of guy. So when I went over to the representative and had words with her, it came from an anger of the fact that I was being somehow taken and made into something I was not, end of quote. And um, I I, uh, am a big believer in reconciliation, Lakeisha. I've done this my entire life, one way or other, with everybody in my family, people outside of my family, kids I've coached, parents I have to deal with of kids I coach, other coaches of the kids I'm coaching. And uh, that first instinct to strike someone like Keisha, you know what I'm saying? Like he heard you put his name on that list. So his instinct is to come and confront you is really a disturbing instinct. And he, he said in his initial quotes uh, to, uh, he said something along the lines of, what did he say? He goes, uh, uh, he was shaped by an upbringing that taught him, quote, you don't take a, Injustice. You don't take anything that is wrong lightly. And to me, it's beyond a fight on the floor, Lakeisha Collins. You know what I'm saying? Like this notion, oh, you said something about bad about me? I'm going to get in your face. That to me, that immediate need to just pound somebody is so wrong. You get what I'm saying? It's like Correct. the root of so much of our just like shootings in the streets, fightings. But you know what, Ben, the the reality of this is this. He could have said something in the midst of that debate. Because obviously you had your mask off at some point for your name to be written down. You sit a couple of rows behind me. When I gave the motion, I wasn't looking behind me to see if you put your mask on. The speaker didn't see it. That was um, acting speaker of the day. He didn't see it. So a, a mere mistake, all you had to do was be an adult press the speaker button and say, hey, I have my mask on and I could have corrected it then. Or you could have approached me and said, hey, Rep Collins, you know, I I did put my mask on. I was in compliance. Can you at least speak to that on the floor? There's a million ways we could have done this. You chose the way you wanted to choose and you used your privilege to do that. And you thought that I was going to just turn the other cheek and allow it to happen and continue to happen. No, I'm not going to do that. So, um, and his main thing was like, I don't want anybody bullying me into an apology. And my thing is, if you were raised in the way that you're saying you were raised, a sincere apology is doing it on your own cognizance, not because someone is asking you to do it. And when do you ever worry about what people say about you? Like, it's already out there. Well, I... Uh, here's something else uh, he, uh, the floor he said yesterday, and uh, I had to kind of chuckle over this one. So yesterday was uh, kiss up and makeup day. Everybody made up. I got that in quotes. Uh, and he said, 
I will say again, I'm sorry for what I said. I am offering up an apology, but it's no different than the apology I would have offered up uh, had she, meaning you, been willing to listen to me 10 minutes after this happened and that this uh, never would have had to occur. <laughs> That's how you do things in my world. You're honest, you take care of business, you clean up your own mess, and you move on. It's what I intend to do with this. And of course, all right, let me just say this. And I'm going to say this to State Representative Wright. Uh, you're much bigger than I am. Or you're probably stronger, and you could probably beat me up in a fight. So I'm saying this as respectfully as I can. And please, sir, if you hear this, do not feel compelled to come put your finger in my face or hit me. All right? I'm just saying this out of respect. That's not really a good apology. You don't apologize by saying, I would have apologized, but she wouldn't accept it. Like, she did something wrong. You, know, you did something wrong, and she was not ready to accept the apology at the moment. Like, if you just, like, throw beer in someone's face at a bar, and then they're drenched in beer, and then you go, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. They, they may not want to apologize at that moment. Okay. I, I explained yeah. it to him. I told him, I said, you're, you don't even know who your colleagues are. Like I was somebody who experienced sexual, verbal, physical abuse. And to have that happen to me, you took me back to a dark place. So not only do you have to be aware of that, but you just never know who you're approaching. And we're all adults. You're way older than me. You should know this by now. But because he has gotten away with it before, he feels as though he can do it again and again. And it's just not right. They're calling me back to the floor, but that's just not right. So right. I thank you, uh, Ben. Um, yes, you know, they're calling you to the floor. We'll bring you on uh, a little next week or maybe the week after uh, to talk more about politics and some of the other comments you made, which are really important and should be followed up on. All right. Yes. Yes. Thank you. All so right. Much. Take care, Lakeisha. Bye. Lakeisha Collins. Yes. Uh, our next guest, Miles Conflast. We're going to bring him on a little bit. Let me just finish up a few thoughts on this one. I really feel strongly about this. I'll go back and read this quote. Uh, this is uh, State Representative uh, Reich uh, with his on the floor apology. I will say again, I am sorry for what I've said. I'm offering up an apology, but it's no different than the apology I would have offered up had she, Lakeisha, been willing to listen to me 10 minutes after this happened and that this never would have had to occur. That's how you do things in my world. You're honest, you take care of business, you clean up your own mess, and you move on. It's what I intend to do with this. I, I just still, I can't get over that. It's so hard for people to make apologies. And I know I've done some really dumb things in my life. You know, I've lost my temper. And, you know, you just, when you lose your temper, <laughs> Dennis knows. I think I lost my temper once or twice at young Dennis. Yes, I know that's hard to believe because <laughs> he's such an easygoing guy. Smoke a doobie here or there, that kind of guy. But um, you lose your temper, you reflect upon it, you walk, try to get all that anger out of you. I'm giving lessons to Republicans on how to apologize. And then you decide whether losing your temper was worth, or no, whatever the issue was that sparked you was worth losing your temper. Because more often than not, when you really lose your temper and you just get into someone's face, that is as bad or worse than whatever they did to ignite you. I know well, it's unfair. It's like the NBA. You know, in the back, uh-oh, sports analogy. Oh. Uh, so here comes the sports analogy. Am I going to have to explain it? Am I going to explain it to my life? The NBA is the National Basketball Association. But in the NBA, uh, it's generally the second person in a fight that gets the biggest punishment. So, for instance, let's say Dennis and I are playing basketball, and he gives me a wicked elbow, all right? 
to to the neck. I've I'm been like, known to do it. I've been known to do it. <laughs> they call back home and on. They call them elbows. Yeah, you didn't know that, did you, ladies and gentlemen? Oh. Gives me a wicked elbow. And then he runs down the court snickering. <laughs> I got away with that one. And I run down the court and slug him. Okay. And the ref, the ref caught, blows the whistle. They didn't see the elbow, but they saw me slug him. Boom. I'm the one assessed two technicals and kicked out of the game. And I'm going, buh, 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 buh. he gave me an elbow. And the refs go, get off the court. So, yes, many times. It's the second person who bears the brunt. The person, you know, you feel like you're offended. Now, in this particular case, I absolutely don't think it was such a horrible thing uh, Lakeisha Collins did. You know, but he was offended. Reich was offended. But I'm just saying, Reich, your response was far greater than her offense, in my opinion. So you just got to say apology. I'm sorry. You know what? It was a really bad response. There's no justification for it. I'm not going to bring it's a bad. Just learn how to apologize. Then the interesting thing. Close down uh, this discussion. So they had their apology day yesterday. And there's still three Republicans (laughs) not wearing masks. Oh, my God. What is with Republicans and these mask mandates? And for the record, she had a mask on while she was talking with us. Yes, yes. Lakeisha had a mask on. She was on the floor. She very kind of break some time. A very good friend of this show, Lakeisha Collins. And uh, she took some time. She go, Ben, yeah, I'll talk to you. But bring her on for a a longer uh, in-depth interview in a couple weeks. Got a lot of political issues to talk about with her. But point is, is that Republicans... They just really want to resist the mask mandate. And I understand there's some political theater involved in this. This is a very important issue for the Republican Party going forward, not just in this state or throughout the country, but especially in this state. It's one of the issues they think they can gain leverage in uh, over Pritzker. They sense that the public opinion has drastically changed on the issue of masks as COVID recedes as a threat. Whether COVID comes back as a threat, well, we don't know. We'll have to wait. But at the moment, it's definitely receding. And uh, the more it recedes, the less of a threat it is. uh, And the more Democrats look what? Bossy, out of date in regards to mask mandates. So the Republicans understand this. They're trying to exploit this. And that's what's happening in the, in the state house. They're trying to turn themselves into defenders of liberty. Which I always get a kick out of when I see Republicans trying to defend themselves as defenders of liberty. Uh, in this particular case, uh, they want the liberty not to wear a mask. And so even after the apology, even after uh, they had their makeup to break up day, or is it the other way around? Uh, their day of reconciliation, three Republicans uh, were not wearing masks. And uh, so apparently they're just going to try to milk this issue until the mask mandate is lifted uh, in the state house. And then I don't know what, maybe they'll put masks on because their official policy of the Republican party at the moment is that uh, masks should be up to the individual. So if you want to wear one, wear one, wouldn't that be interesting if they suddenly started wearing masks? All right. My next guest has arrived. Miles Conflossen, editor, writer extraordinaire for In These Times, a proud graduate of Whitney Young High School. I just throw that in there for the hell of it. I just want to say, you know, we're doing great so far. No curse words. Let's keep it going. We're going to get them. 
This one's getting on lumping, baby. Oh, yes. Uh, and uh, a regular on our show, Miles. Miles never really curses. Anyway, uh, I can't recall him instant. Uh, instant I've, I've heard a few times, but you know. I don't know. Anyway, Miles, welcome back to the show. Uh, the reason why we have uh, Dennis reminded me is that every week we uh, give a show to Lumpen Radio and they air it. And they are on AM radio, so they have rules that we don't usually uh abide by on the Ben Jarofsky show. So if somebody drops the F-bomb, then poor Dennis has to go back and edit it out. And they're it's actually, hard. they're on FM radio. Yes, FM radio. Did I say AM? Mm-hmm. I meant FM. Uh, anyway, FM, AM, it doesn't matter what it is on, Ben. Uh, it um, can't swear. So Dennis said, just don't swear today, all right? So I don't have to edit it out. But Miles, you're not going to swear anyway, isn't that correct? That's right. I'm going to do my best to keep things extremely clean here. All right. Uh, we have a lot to talk about today uh, about what's happening in Ukraine or the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I, I've been uh, on the air for about a half an hour now, so I'm, I'm not following it up to date. Uh, but I just want to know if you want to weigh in. While we make the transition, I had the Lakeisha Collins on and she was talking, the state representative from the west side of Chicago, and she was talking about uh, the uh, incident last week uh, where a... Uh, a Republican legislator got in her face, was putting his finger in her face and dropped the F-bomb on her. Of all days that we can't say it, I just have to say it, it was the F-bomb uh, because she inadvertently uh, put him on a list of uh, state Republicans uh, who were not wearing their mask at the time. The politics of masks as being played by the Republican Party at this moment in time, Miles Conflassen, uh, I think they see this as a winning issue, uh, so they're going to milk it for as long as they can. Uh, how do you, how do you see it? Yeah, it's much like the vaccine debate. I mean, unfortunately, basic, uh, public health strategies have now become, uh, political cudgels that are being used to, you know, get ones, get points on the other side. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, just, you know, looking at how our, um, lives have been changed over the past couple years. It's understandable that people want to return to some sense of normalcy, um, and therefore it is a winning political message to say, "Hey, we don't want to, you know, have to change our behavior completely by doing things like um, wearing masks." That said, I mean, when you look at polling, actually, there is more support for vaccine mandates, certainly, as well as mask mandates than you think from hearing just the Republican talking points on all these matters. So um, I'm not so sure that, you know, them claiming the, you know, to be the party of freedom necessarily squares with, you know, people wanting protection during a a pandemic. All this, though, is changing quickly as more Democratic governors um, drop their mask mandates as well. This is going to happen here on Monday. And I think, obviously, there is a political element to that. But there's also, you know, we have to be able to respond to changing conditions. And with um, case counts dropping um, at, you know, really incredible levels, it, you know, it doesn't make sense to keep all the same restrictions in place either. And so I think Democrats both are going to face political as well as obviously legal pressure. I mean, if you look at the, what happened with the uh, masks in schools case, like, you know, you can't stand if you if you're facing mass legal pressure as well as political pressure, that's going to change how you operate as a party. But at the same time, you have to, you know, take into consideration the fact that we're not in the midst of, you know, an Omicron surge like we were in January. And so there should be some changes in our 
um, public policy as well. So, yeah, I do think it's a cynical move, of course, by the right to try to make this about, you know, freedom and liberty when ultimately it's about actually saving people's lives through taking a very basic step like wearing a mask or getting a vaccine. Um, but I think it's also understandable people want to, you know, have more ability to go out and live their lives. And I hope we're, we are going to start to see that if we continue to see these case numbers drop. Yeah. And uh, before we're going to move on to Ukraine now, but I just have to say uh, if there is, and I really hope there isn't uh, another resurgence of COVID uh, and the, on the, as we head into this next election cycle, I have to wonder how uh, much re- uh, Democratic governors like Pritzker uh, will be willing to impose mandates uh, because what the Republican Party has successfully done is identified uh, a course of opposition in this country uh, that I think is spreading uh, to uh, mandates of any kind and uh, particularly mask mandates. And so, uh, Miles, I... You know, that's I guess it's a topic for another time. But you're you, what you just said just triggered it to me. And I was like, yeah, it's going to be really difficult from a political uh, position for a governor like Pritzker for reelection suddenly like in June, you know, just suddenly, well, we got to put those masks back on. And people are like, no way. Uh, all right. Let's talk about what's happening uh, it, with Russia and Ukraine. I've been on the air, as I said, for about a half an hour. So I don't know any of the details of the latest details. Uh, as I went on the air, uh, uh, President Biden was uh, giving a t- televised address. Uh, reports were of shelling of, uh, by Russian troops, Kiev and other cities uh, in Ukraine. Before we get into uh, the substance of our conversation, Miles, are there any updates that you know about over the last half hour? Well, I think as far as, um, you know, the situation on the ground, it's uh, it, Russian forces have uh, moved in across the country. It's not just in the um, eastern portion, as many people, or in the, you know, so-called, um, you know, uh, the contested states um, and regions along the eastern uh, border. It's, you know, Kiev, as you mentioned, and other parts of the country are facing shelling. It does seem that, you know, it's strategic in terms of their targeting airfields and military outposts, um, as well as energy sectors. I did see that it looks like Chernobyl has been now taken over um, by by Russian forces. Um, And this is clearly a uh, full-fledged invasion by uh, Vladimir Putin and the the Russian regime. I think there can be no doubt that it's going to continue. And the goal is to um, change the government in Ukraine and uh, create much more of a you know a friendly regime with with Russia, if not a complete client state, um, and that is uh, you know a chilling development in in terms of what it means for Europe and you know uh, relations more broadly uh, because this is something that's been warned about for a long time, and now we're seeing. Um, Putin take action without even having much uh, in the way of support. You know, it's not like there was even a coalition of the willing, like the, you know, the U.S. supposedly put together before the the Iraq War. This is just you know Putin taking a course on his own. And if you listen to that speech he gave the other night, I mean, he laid out his um, rationale for war, and it was in a way similar to um, how the Bush administration laid out their case to go into Iraq. I mean, obviously these are very different situations, but in terms of this being uh, 
uh, act of aggression taken by a country premeditatedly. Um, they're, they're somewhat similar. And even some of the uh, reasons that Putin gave, I mean, largely it was based in um, history as well as uh, talk about Russian security, you know, fearing development of uh, missiles that would come with with Ukraine potentially joining NATO. But one interesting thing that Putin said is he brought up the possibility of nuclear capabilities um, without really supplying any evidence. And you can't help but think that's similar to what Colin Powell and, you know, Bush administration officials alleged in the run-up to the Iraq war as well with no um, no evidence as a justification to to invade there. And so, it you know, as I said, it's, it's, it's very chilling. And I think that there's no way to respond to war other than, um, I mean, you there you have to hope and pray for the people that are going to be the most affected um, and seek to de-escalate as much as possible. And in this case, I think that just means restraint in terms of any further military action. Um, we've seen the United States get involved militarily before. It seems um, in other regions, it seems that the president uh, Biden is so far resisting um taking even you know implementing a no-fly zone as some in ukraine have called for or taking other military action i think that's a positive thing of course this is all still developing and we don't know exactly where it's going to go um but i think in terms of for the safety of ukrainians and russians and americans resisting um the growing calls for further american intervention has to be what um you know, any type of anti-war movement uh, pushes for in the face of this. And that doesn't mean, you know, treating it as if this is not a serious uh, situation or if, you know, Vladimir Putin is not uh, clearly, you know, an imperial architect working to um, spread his control in the region. I think those things are de definitely true, but that does not justify, I think, further um, American involvement. So, yeah, that's what I'm, that's kind of where my head is at right now, Robert. Well, I got to tell you, the United States, I've never, um, as I say this, I'm, I'm trying to think back to make sure what I'm saying is accurate. And I think it is, so I'm going to go forth with it anyway. Who knows, by the time it's out of my mouth, I, I, I may, may be withdrawing it. But I've never in my lifetime, lived a long time, Miles, seen such a divided country uh, facing a, um, a foreign policy threat. And foreign policy, as I said to you on the phone before we came in the air, is, is, is always a murky area f uh, for Americans. Uh, you know, now we're dealing with an, an area of the world that most of us or many of us know nothing about, uh, strange names that we're learning for the first time. Uh, people are really busy with their own lives. It's hard to care about something that's happening in your backyard, uh, let alone uh, across the world. So it's always difficult for Americans uh, to care uh, in the first place. And so uh, I think it was Noam Chomsky talks about manufactured consent. There's always this effort to get Americans to care about things that they don't instinctively uh, care about. Uh, we're doing that in the face of divisions in our country that I've never seen before. And so it's striking to me that in a moment where a U.S. president has come before the U.S. people to say why this matter uh, is so important to American citizens. You have the leader, and he is the leader, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, America, of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, openly mocking the U.S. President, Joe Biden, and celebrating the quote-unquote virtues of 
Vladimir Putin. I, I got to tell you, Miles, I've never I've never seen anything like this uh, in my lifetime where the leader of one party is mocking the leader of the other and supporting uh, the other side. And I would say that Donald Trump probably speaks for a good chunk of the Republican voting population when he does that, because generally he's in line with them or they're in line with him. Uh, and so what do you think the consequences of this division are for the United States as they try to come up with some kind of what uh, logical and consistent uh, policy toward Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine? I, I think in terms of that equation you just set out, I think they're in line with him more than anything else in terms of I think Trump is really leading his base on this question because you can imagine, you know, a propaganda effort on the other side working just as easily, you know, to say. And, and, and that's what's really a fascinating development here is the fissures within the American right in terms of how to respond to this because you're completely right to point out the fact that, you know, Trump hasn't just criticized Biden and, and praised Putin. He, I mean, he called him a genius the other day, but he's actually saying that he's like getting the better of Biden by, cause he's today or yesterday was Mar-a-Lago. He did an event where he said, you know, that Russia and Putin were able to get this great land with great people talking about, you know, invading a sovereign country, Ukraine, uh, their, their neighbor. He said he was able to do that for a $2 sanction, who wouldn't take that deal? You know, it's like he's just thinking about it in terms of, uh, of deals again. And, you know, that the, the Putin is a savvy businessman. It's kind of like when he defended not paying taxes just by saying, you know, I'm smart. I like game the system. You know, he's giving uh, respect and flowers to Putin for supposedly like pulling one over. But I mean, the, the um, ramifications of that are devastating, not to, you know, in terms of the human toll that that will uh, bring, I mean, a, a, especially a prolonged war in Ukraine, which I think you're already seeing Ukrainian forces fighting back, you know, and, and they said they've shot down some fighter jets some helicopters. This really has the possibility to turn into an elongated conflict, even though obviously Russia has much stronger military might, not to mention they actually are a nuclear power. So, you know, they hold uh, that card, and uh, which, which rides over all of this in a very terrifying way. Um, but, you know, Trump's not the only one. I think that that's what's interesting here. Like, you're seeing a split. Kevin McCarthy put out a statement where he completely, you know, he, he criticized Putin and um, the invasion. He didn't even mention Biden, you know, um, in terms of critically, in terms of the, you know, response that the president has had. Whereas most Republicans are at least criticizing Biden, but then they're also criticizing Putin. And then you have this kind of hard right Trumpist MAGA line, which, as you said, is the dominant wings. Um, of the Republican Party that's, you know, wants Putin, you know, you saw Tucker Carlson the other night praising Putin saying, you know, what did he ever do to you, which, you know, it's kind of stealing it from the left. I mean, that's one thing that, you know, left internationalists often say, you know, we shouldn't get involved in, in places where there's no immediate threat. I mean, that might be true, but you can also see, you know, when people, when, when there's geo 
polit- geopolitical conflict that will have deeper ramifications. You, you know, from a humanitarian lens, you have to think about things further than just your own borders, I think. Um, but yeah, Tucker was rejecting all that and just trying to defend Putin. And then you have Steve Bannon on his show who said, you know, Putin ain't woke. And that was the way he defended Putin as by saying, you know, from a really illiberal far right angle, he was like, they know, you know, which bathrooms to use and they know how many genders there are in Russia, you know, praising um, Putin for running a more, you know, authoritarian and closed off society. Um, and so that's that that I think is. Um, a running theme in right-wing politics. I mean, Pat Buchanan back, you know, in the 90s called Putin a paleo fellow paleoconservative, you know, saying that he was on board with these kind of like hard-right economics along, or at least neoliberal economics along with like an embrace of evangelical or at least, you know, very strict social norms. Um, and so Trump's not the first one. I think that this is part of a running theme, but it does fly in the face of, you know, what the Republican Party has said for decades when it comes to uh, international relations as they concern Russia, which has been far more critical of of Putin and how he runs the country and his role on the world stage. Um, And we're going to see that fight continue to play out because I don't see Trump changing his attitude anytime soon. And but it's also hard to see him bringing the entire Republican establishment on his side in terms of just, you know, I guess just doing nothing in response to um, this invasion of Ukraine. So, yeah, it's a very strange time in terms of how the U.S. right is uh, responding to this foreign policy development. Yeah. Uh, and uh, by the way, it wouldn't be the first time that the right stole the rhetoric of the left to try to justify something that, <laughs> that probably nobody in the left would even dare consider. We're seeing it happening all the time uh, with uh, uh, vaccines. They stole the line of Planned Parenthood, our body, our rights. All right. Um, So uh, the other thing Trump's doing at the same time, he's praising uh, Putin and mocking Biden uh, and saying that Putin's got the better of him. Good for him, uh, which is really some of the most twisted logic I've ever seen uh, is saying it wouldn't have happened if I were president, which I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tragic situation and people are dying, but there's just a level of utter absurdity. It's like black comedy. You have to kind of laugh because like, what wouldn't have happened? You know what I'm saying? Like, are you saying that Putin wouldn't have invaded Ukraine if you were president, but you're supporting his invasion of Ukraine. So <laughs> why why wouldn't he? You know, I mean, I'm like, I, I don't get it. If Putin thinks it's in his best interest to go to invade Ukraine, what is it that you would do that would prevent him from doing that? I, it's utterly absurd. And so to repeat or echo uh, Donald Trump, as many people on the right are doing, is you're just sort of contradicting yourself in the what you said in the first second sentence immediately thereafter in the second sentence. Help me out here, Miles, trying to make sense of this. Well, again, pathologizing uh, the former president is a a bit of a fool's errand. But, I mean, of course he's going to take any wins he can. And every, you know, once you see things through the lens of I'm, you know, the greatest person in the world and, (laughs) you know, and and I can do no wrong, that I think changes how you, you know, respond to any development. You just kind of, you know, fit it to form into that uh, prior that you've started out, you know, your 
your approach to life with, which is I deserve everything. I'm the best, uh, what have you. And then adding on that Biden, everything Biden does is wrong, you know? So he's going to say that Biden is screwed up somehow by, you know, letting this happen, but also argue that it happening is actually a genius move on Putin's part. So you're right. It's completely confused logic. I would say like, you know, under Trump's uh, presidency, it's not like we had a completely hands-off relationship with Russia or Putin. I mean, the foreign policy establishment was still under, you know, Tillerson and even Mad Dog Mattis and stuff. They were still doing, they were still like putting pressure on Russia and, and you know, not stopping any of the NATO expansion that is what Russia is citing now is like a reason for this invasion in the first place. So the actual policy under Trump wasn't as pro-Russia as, you know, a lot of the, you know, general reporting or even Trump's personal statements might make it seem. Um, so in that way, maybe he's trying to say, like, you know, my I, I would be able to negotiate in the back rooms with Putin because he likes me. I mean, that's what he's saying a lot. Trump says, you know, I know him. I know him really, really well, as if they're like good friends or something. Uh, but I don't see how that gives leverage in terms of changing what the behavior of Putin, because Putin, I mean, what Putin said is that this is in response to the, the you know, changing of uh, the regime in 2014, long before Trump came to power, you know, and that that is the um, reason. And you know, what's really scary is that he, uh, if you listen to that speech, he says that he wants to complete the process of decommunization, right? Which is like after 2014 and this much more pro-West regime came into power, they started to take down like the statues of Lenin and some of the history of um, communism. And what Putin argued was that Ukraine even being independent in any way and having its own identity was started by Lenin under, you know, the um, Soviet uh, regime a century ago, and that therefore Ukrainian people should be uh, thankful, you know, that, that they were handed this independence from um, Lenin and, you know, under Stalin as well. But at the same time, he's saying now you're taking down the statues, so we're going to help you complete that process by just taking away your independence completely, which is, you know, it, again, it's pretty chilling in terms of like what that could mean. I mean, it could just mean a complete takeover of the Ukraine and claiming it as within the, um, the borders of greater Russia. Um, that's like re really scary stuff. And I don't see how Trump is going to, would be able to like manipulate Putin out of this like sweep of history view of his actions, um, at all. I mean, that's, that, that's the real point at which we face, you know, a stalemate right now. Cause what, way forward obviously must be some type of uh, diplomatic negotiations and working to get Putin to the table around things. But when you talk about things in terms of like the sweep of history, like Putin was doing, it's very hard to find areas where you could, he could back down and find some type of a, uh, agreement at this point, it seems like he's going full fledged in that direction and nothing. I don't think that there was much more besides earlier on. I mean, the U S has obviously brought in Poland and the Baltic States and other, um, areas uh, going, um, eastward into uh into nato and that's like a foundational issue at play here is the fact that russia sees that as a direct threat um and that that was is the result of policy making uh on in the u.s and broadly up, up by the west um so uh, that could have changed but in terms of like this few month 
window in which we've been building up to this point, I don't see there being, you know, huge changes in terms of the approach that would have led to a different outcome um, if we are to believe Putin's actual rationales that he gave for going into Ukraine. So, yeah, Trump, I don't see, I mean, it just sounds like he's just saying everything to make himself seem like the best person in the world again. And, and like, he, he was able to pull that off among his base, but under any scrutiny, it just doesn't hold up. And I think most Republicans know that as well, or at least Republican leaders, but they don't want to cross him. So they're just saying, you know, they're just talking themselves in circles so that they don't have to, they're either going full pro Putin, like Bannon and Carlson and like that wing are, or they're just trying to not address it whatsoever because they don't want to get on his bad side because look, he's running all these primaries now, you know, Trump is backing all these challengers to, um, more moderate members of the Republican Party, if you can even call them that, at least more people that are more critical of Trump and don't think the election was stolen. Um, so he's he's showing his political muscle, even if he doesn't run in 2024, which I think he obviously will. Uh, he's showing that he can have influence in the party and change behavior of the, the representatives that way too. So yeah, they don't want to get on his bad side. So I think you're going to start to see more and more Republicans fall in line with that. Um, pro-Putin, but also pro-Trump uh, line and let's say like this never would have happened if Trump was president, but also Putin's great, which yeah. doesn't add up, but that's just what they're saying. It's completely contradictory uh, and it's ludicrous and yet they will ape it. And I have absolutely no confidence. You uh, I meant to say this when you first said it, uh, you talked about Kevin McCarthy uh, issuing a statement. I saw that his statement uh, denouncing Putin. I have no confidence that Kevin McCarthy, the uh, leader of the con- uh, of the Republicans, the House of Representatives, will stand by his guns. He will he will fo- he will be the first to fold under any pressure from MAGA. And we saw that uh, with the way he dealt with uh, Kinzinger and uh, uh, Liz Cheney. Uh, you know this notion that this is supposedly a party of liberty, a party of free expression, a par- party that t- tolerates dissent was thrown out the window when they kick him out of the party and now they're moving to, uh, well, Kinsinger won't even run again. Cause you know, he doesn't have a future in Republican party, but uh, they're, they're, they've mounting a campaign against Liz Cheney. So I have no confidence, uh, in that Kevin McCarthy will stand by, uh, that press statement. It'll be uh, thrown out the window. I guarantee you, uh, by, with any pressure for the, well, I said the first tweet from Trump, but he's not on Twitter. So maybe, uh, an appearance anywhere close to California. Uh, I, I gotta say, uh, when I was listening to you, you talk there, uh, it was, by the way, a really great riff you went on. Thank you for doing that. Uh, but, I just feel as though, as a guy who's been watching uh, American foreign policy for all these years, is that we're at a point where we're finally coming face-to-face with the reality that people largely don't trust our own government when it comes to foreign policy. And Donald Trump has been openly uh, taking advantage of that from the get-go. Uh, and he grew up during the Vietnam War. He chose not to go to the Vietnam War. He understands, uh, as any baby boomer does, but most won't uh, openly say it, that there's a divide in this country, that the, the values that uh, we're told to go fight for 
by our leaders, be it in Kuwait or Iraq or Grenada or Vietnam, et cetera and so forth, most Americans don't share, don't want to put their bodies on the line for that. Donald Trump understands that. And so whenever an American president or foreign policy leader tries to uh, manufacture support for whatever initiative uh, they're advancing, it usually comes out, Miles, that they're not completely telling the truth. Anybody paying attention? You know, and it's a cynicism that's baked into popular culture. You see it in movies and TV shows where our leaders lie to us all the time. I feel like there's a tremendous amount of cynicism, to put it mildly. I know I'm saying something obvious. And so I think a lot of Americans, no matter where they stand, uh, as Democrats or Republicans, just instinctively have doubts. I'm saying this as euphemistically as I can about the validity of what uh, our American leaders are saying. And I think Colin Powell's speech at the UN really just cemented that forever and forever where he's, you know, he talked about the, uh, the weapons uh, of destruction that they had, that they didn't have uh, your thoughts about this uh, miles that uh, this, this disbelief Americans have for what their leaders are saying. Well, they have every right to be uh, suspicious, if not outright, you know, non-believing in the cases that the U.S. foreign policy establishment presents in terms of reasons for either intervention or just military buildup. Because we were lied to, you know, and I think that that war, there's both war fatigue from having these forever wars um, in Afghanistan and Iraq, but there's also just the very basic uh, fact that there was no rationale for for those wars. I mean, you you could say initially that there were Al Qaeda outposts that um, Osama bin Laden was operating from in Afghanistan, and that was a reason for taking some type of an a- action there. But that doesn't, you know, justify a, a decades long, a multi decades long uh, occupation of that country. And when it comes to Iraq, uh, there was no reason for intervening whatsoever. I mean, we sold Saddam Hussein the weapons that we then claimed were the that he was, you know, building up in order to cause some type of regional devastation. When in fact, the United States was the country that uh, that carried that out. So there's, I think that there's uh, people can be forgiven completely for being suspicious. They should actually feel good about the fact that they're suspicious of their government because. The propaganda was effective. I mean, it led um, the United States into the uh, the war in Iraq, but that was the biggest foreign policy blunder um, in uh, in at least half a century. And the fact is, we're still living with the fallout from that right now. The Donald Trump's claim to get back to your original point. I mean, Donald Trump did um, help to. Uh, animate that sense of the government lying to you and he's going to tell you the truth um, by pointing out that Iraq was, you know, a, a mistake. But and, and that gave some people, including in the press and certainly fellow um, right wing politicians, the sense that Donald Trump was somehow anti-war. But then, you know, look at the people he appointed into his cabinet. He had John Bolton in his in his cabinet. Look what happened. You know, we with the strikes in Syria, obviously Khomeini and um, 
in Iran. Um, there was not the, the buildup of the military. I mean, the huge, massive military uh, budgets passed under Trump. There's no way in which he operated as an actual anti-war president, but he was able to just tap into that vein, which I think, you know, honestly, we've talked about this. I think Obama was able to tap in before him when he spoke out against the, the Iraq war. And I think it's effective because of the fact that the Iraq war was based on a lie and people uh, still remember that and they don't want to repeat it. And I think having your um, government, you know, tell you that it's kind of like you can't um, unring that bell once 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 it's happened. Well, with all of that said, I mean, I do think so far one of the most um, consequential acts that Joe Biden has taken as president has been withdrawing troops from Afghanistan and maintaining, you know, and continuing to pull out from Iraq, he's actually carried out, you know, uh, an end to these forever wars. It's a complete travesty what's happened since then. I mean, in terms of the lack of humanitarian aid and the uh, crisis that's ongoing um, in Afghanistan, especially this most recent announcement that they're going to seize all these assets and then give half of them to families of 9-11 victims, when even those victims are uh, speaking out against that and saying it should go to Afghanis. Um, I think that is a travesty. But by and large, I mean, what Biden has done is is um, carried out uh, withdrawals. And that's actually, you know, I think that's much more of an anti-war um policy versus just rhetoric and positioning, which is all that Trump had on offer. Because Trump, Trump's not that smart. You know, he doesn't like, not, not, not that, you know, not trying to say Biden's a genius, but like Trump's just going to say whatever he, he like, speaks from the gut, kind of like, you know, George W. Bush. He's not like thinking through what he's going to, how, how he's going to actually change his behavior. Because obviously Biden took a big political hit by doing that because it seemed like, um, uh, debacle when we did pull out and Trump probably didn't even want to deal with that, but he did keep saying, you know, that he was against these stupid wars and that our, you know, foreign policy machine was, um, was foolish. The thing I think we have to look out for though, amid all this is that even if we're not going to take more aggressive action as, um, you know, the U S military, you're going to see, and you're already seeing calls from both the Republican and democratic establishments to increase the size of our military. And I think that is what is most, the most likely outcome is just spending more and more money. I mean, we just passed an over $700 billion defense budget and they're calling for more, you know? So even if we don't, um, go at the same time, they're cut, they just cut off the child tax credit, you know, like we can't like pay for basic social service programs and have a, even pass a domestic agenda, but when it comes money for war, I mean, it's like what Eisenhower said, the machine just keeps churning as it uh, relates to the military-industrial complex. So that's something I think we should just be uh, uh, aware of, because that's one area where under both Trump and Biden, the, the, the war machine has continued its, its um, everlasting buildup. Unbelievable. And I'm glad you, you, you raised that, Miles. I mean, adding to the absurdity, Adding to the absurdity of this, where there's no logic whatsoever, there's no consistency whatsoever, uh, particularly from the Republican side, is the notion that Putin's invasion of Ukraine merits and warrants spending more money uh, on the military. Let's just follow this, folks. Trump is celebrating Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Trump is calling Biden 
excuse me, Putin brilliant. He's mocking Biden. Tucker is saying he's never done anything to me. Why should I be against him? Bannon is saying he's kind of like our kind of guy. We support him. He's an authoritarian, but a good kind of authoritarian. (laughs) So if your ally, Donald Trump, Putin, your ally, invades a country for his whatever reasons he has, whatever authoritarian reasons he has, and you support him in that effort, why then do we need (laughs) to spend more money on defense? What are we defending ourselves against? Your ally? The guy you like? The guy you respect? The guy who's like the heir to the Republican Party? Who, if you were sick or something, could step in and run? By the way, I think Putin right now could get 20% of the MAGA's vote, Miles, if he were to run in the Republican primary here in Illinois. So, I, 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 what you said was so brilliant, brilliant in a Miles way, not in a Putin way, <laughs> because it's, or it's insightful. It's because it's so true. Whatever happens, they're going to find some excuse to raise defense spending. And really, Miles, it's no different than a TIF deal in Chicago. It's just like shoveling money to an industry that captivates you. I just, you're right. It's like Eisenhower said it all, didn't he, Miles, all those years ago? Well, and outside of that, I think that there's there's an element here that you just touched on, which is uh, this idea that what you hear on the right often is these complaints about the illiberal left, quote unquote, you know, that the left just wants to cancel you and, you know, can't have any freedom under the left, meaning just like, you know, liberal democracy, I guess. But inherent in that is, you know, a longing for a different, like the freedom to do something else. And the freedoms they want to have are the freedoms to stop people from, you know, living the lives they want to lead by doing things like being against, you know, you see it in Texas right now where they're, you know, they're fining parents for having trans kids. Like this is that it's, it's not the liberal left, it's the illiberal right. And they are the ones, that's why they see allyship with Putin and his governments. And, um, and one thing I just want to point out is like, this is not happening in a vacuum and Trump is not the only ally on the world stage of Vladimir Putin. Putin has spent, you know, these recent years and decades helping to build up far right autocratic uh, governments across the world. And, you know, you look at Viktor Orban, you look at, you know, in Hungary, you look, you know, other places around the world, these far right movements have been aided and abetted by um, Putin and his allies. And I think Trump and the far right in the U S is just one example of that. And that's helped to run cover for all of their deeply authoritarian um, moves and that's being looked on like with wide eyes, with a, you know um, uh, a happy gaze from a lot of right wing Republicans here in the United States because they want that, and that's what you see in that Steve Bannon quote about Putin not being woke. It's like a desire to be able to control people's lives and their bodies, you know, and through uh, having these very strict social codes. And look at the reason there's no open dissent 
in Russia is because Putin runs an autocracy and has jailed or exiled all of his political opponents. And even now in Moscow, you know, people are trying to uh, protest this and they're being ripped off the streets for holding signs by the police. You know, that's happening like today. So that's the vision that when you see people like Steve Bannon speak highly of what uh, of Putin and how he's running and call him and Trump calls him genius, it's because he's running the country like it's, you know, not a democracy, because even though it says it is, it's not, you know, and that's really their goal. And it fits in line with the way that they're approaching elections and trying to, you know, install allies that will hand them the vote, whatever the outcome of it, you know, it's really, it's an illiberalism and it's a real uh, it, it speaks to this um, refusal to accept the, a, a liberal world order where people are able to, you know, participate and make the decisions that then order their lives. That's not the the worldview that a lot of these guys have. And that's 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 the real divide I think you're seeing in our country right now. Absolutely. And I do believe and I'm not sure what your response to this will be, but I'm going to say it anyway. I do believe that Putin's interference in the 2016 presidential election is still paying off benefits for him in this country. I believe that part of the reason Donald Trump is so appreciative of Putin is that Putin interfered in 2016 to help Donald Trump. Had it been the other way around, (laughs) Donald Trump would be so appreciative of Putin. He interfered, and I think Bannon, Trump, they... they, um, they're puppeting the Putin line. Uh, and I believe, just to your point, the interference that Putin had with right-wing regimes throughout the world exists right here in the United States of America. And MAGA, I appeal to you. Just think about it. You talk about liberty and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and your moment of glory, Donald Trump, was made possible in part uh, by interference from Putin, and now he's getting the payback uh, when Donald Trump uh, supports him and not Biden in this uh, general uh, in, in this invasion. Your thoughts on what I just said, Miles? I think it all comes down to the fact that Putin, you know, expressed some kind words for Trump at some point, or at least not completely, you know, uh, vindictive ones. And that's all it takes, really. You know, even if Putin hadn't been involved in any election interference, like Trump's whole position is Putin likes Trump. And therefore, you know, that's (laughs) that's that. Like he's an ally. Like that's all it really takes. So I think it it comes down to as simple as that in terms. and, And then when Trump says it, his base follows him. So, and that's been true on literally every issue, you know, as soon as Trump kind of like makes some position known, you'll see polling numbers change like instantly. The one place that has not happened is on the vaccine, um, right? Is because Trump wanted all the credit for um, Operation Warp Speed and getting this back uh, uh, vaccine off the ground. And he, you know, was promoting boosters and all this stuff. And then he saw him get booed and, you know, hit some of his allies, even the media, like, you know, Carlson were being more critical and, you know, raising questions about the vaccine. And what happened? Trump stopped talking about it, you know, because he saw that that was some area where he might have some uh, resistance among his base. And he didn't want to lose that to anybody that would even be more anti-vaccine, like Ron DeSantis or, you know, some of these other guys that have just gone full on resisting the vaccine and saying that's, you know, 
going to cause all kinds of damage and health problems. Um, completely untrue. Uh, so that's like the one place that Trump has not been able to bring his base along with him, which is completely, you know, so upsetting because that would be so helpful to our public health in this country if, you know, the MAGA base was willing to get vaccinated. And, you know, Trump, I think, had an opportunity to play a role in that, but he dipped his toe in the water and, you know, he'd already poisoned the well to, you know, extend a metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it, it was too late at that point. Like the right had already built up this whole narrative around the vaccines being um, a tool of the Democrats somehow. So, um, and Dr. Fauci being part of like the corporate global elite or something. And therefore like, you know, it was too late for, for Trump to do that. And so he's just stopped, but yeah, on the Putin stuff, clearly they're, 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 they're more than willing in terms of like to, cause as you said, a lot of people just don't, you know, think that much about this stuff, about like world affairs, about what's happening across the, the, the world. And, you know, so if their guy that they've been listening to and that hosted the celebrity apprentice show starts saying, you know, Putin's not that bad of a guy, it's like, why not, uh, why not believe him? And th that's, that's what's most scary about this, I think, is that it's, it's just without there being a countervailing force to that, um, it'll be just too easy for the, 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 the right wing in America, which is dominated by Trumpists, to just become complete stooges for um, for Putin as he take, carries out this invasion. Yeah, uh, I uh, also note uh, that they will uh, MAGA reserves the right to be selective about which invasions they denounce. So they're already I, it's sort of like China bad, Putin good. Uh, and I hear this, uh, Monroe was saying this yesterday, my good friend Monroe Anderson uh, was saying that, uh, so this may give license to China to invade Taiwan. Uh, the fact that the United States is uh, limited, to put it euphemistically, uh, in what it can do to respond. If the United States is not going to send uh, soldiers to meet the, the invasion, then really, Miles, you're talking sanctions, uh, and uh, there's a certain cynicism that Donald Trump was uh, venting when he said, yeah, oh God, what a deal. I get a I get, wait, one hand Ukraine, the other hand, some sanctions. Uh, and um, so I, I personally don't believe that the United States is willing to commit soldiers to any conflict uh, across the world. So I, how do I put this? It's like, I don't think that's what's keeping China from invading Taiwan. And I don't think that's what kept Putin from invading Ukraine. You follow what I'm saying? I don't think they legitimately felt the United States would send soldiers over. Particularly if you look at the last 20 years in the United States, how devastating the war in Iraq was to the American psyche. And... Um, you know, how reluctant America, I think, is to ever go into war again unless it's directly attacked. I, um, that's my, uh, my thoughts. What's your, your uh, analysis of those who say the argument that, well, if we don't stop, uh, confront Putin here, uh, we're going to have to deal with China invading Taiwan and Lord knows what else. Well, the U.S. does not get into military conflicts with nuclear powers, uh, and there's a reason for that. So I think that that is, you know, how we can explain <laughs> all of the, the, this foreign policy decision making is that there's 
you know, the risk of there's a reason mutually assured destruction was a thing and during the Cold War, you know, and and kept some kind of a detente. It's because there is a massive risk of um, agitating and running into conflict with a fellow nuclear power, which could mean, you know, massive fallout and millions of deaths. And Lord knows we all want to um, avoid that. And so, yeah, when it comes to any, cause I, the, the question I ask, you know, to that question is like, you know, what do you say about it? What does it mean about China and Taiwan? It's like, well, how are you proposing to stop what is happening right now? You know, is it to bring troops to the, to the Russian border or to, you know, send, I mean, NATO forces are already fortifying as, as, you know, as we, um, talk, but, in terms of like a direct military role, like that is going to provoke Russia, which has nuclear weapons. Like that is not a good idea for Americans uh, security. You know, if we're looking out for, for our own uh, country. And then at the same point, you know, you mentioned the sanctions. I do I mean the United States has already carried out a number of sanctions. Um, they plan to do more. I'm sure that'll happen. But at this point, the invasion is already taking place. And what you see, unfortunately, with the dynamics under global capitalism is that once you sanction one country, our systems are so um, globalized and intertwined that the ramifications of that in terms of inflation, in terms of rising prices, certainly when it comes to energy costs, oil, even if the United States isn't directly getting those from Russia um, because of international trade, that will end up having downstream effects that, um, that hurt Americans, you know, and that's you have to, you know, kind of weigh that. And and Russia's pretty cut off. I mean, they do um, export a lot of commodities, but not much in terms of other, um, they're, they're not super involved in, you know, the kind of international finance to a level that you'd be able to have a massive effect through sanctions besides things like the SWIFT bank, which now there's being pressure for them to do. But again, if you put those sanctions on the that, that pain is going to be felt in Americans' wallets. It's going to lead to, you know, ever-increasing gas prices, further inflation. And that's, you know, not good politically for certainly the Biden administration, but even just for a country that's trying to get out of this pandemic-wracked economy. Um, so, and, and it's clearly not going to stop. None of those things are going to stop Putin from carrying out this invasion because it's already going on. So, I mean, I just asked that question of like, what do you propose as the alternative is in terms of more involvement, it's either, you know, taking massive new sanctions that could have really negative consequences on um, Europe and, and America or potentially provoking a nuclear power with, uh, through military action. And I think both of those are, are not great solutions. Um, so I think that that's why diplomacy is important. And certainly that is still an option and ongoing as it relates to, uh, to China and Taiwan. Um, and that's what I would recommend versus, yeah, getting more involved militarily. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's uh, uh, move on from this topic, uh, close out the show with a couple. Uh, you, we, we've spent quite a bit of time talking foreign policy, very rare on this show. Like I said, uh, I'm kind of uh, in line with most of my fellow Americans. I'm utterly obsessed with what's happening right in front of me and uh, rarely look beyond uh, the city of Chicago, much less the United States borders. Uh, speaking of which, Senator Rick Scott, I didn't talk to you about this, uh, but I... We don't really have enough time to take the deep dive. We could do a whole show on this one. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, Miles, but Senator Rick Scott from Florida introduced a proposal uh, that's intended to uh, make our tax system fair. I'm not making this up. 
up is down and down is up as it is with uh, Donald Trump, the MAGA's attitude toward Putin up is down and down is up. It's going to make the tax system more fair. How? By raising the rates on the wealthiest Americans. Do you ask uh, to, <laughs> are they going to make uh, Jeff Bezos pay at a higher rate or Bill Gates pay at a higher rate? No, they're going to raise the rates on the poorest people. And, so far, I don't know, Miles, I don't know if you saw this, been following it, it's been kind of following it from afar, this proposal. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere because Republicans don't think it's a winning, <laughs> the way politics happens in this country. They don't think it's a winning strategy heading into the midterms. Uh, far more winning strategy, of course, is to uh, celebrate the liberties that we enjoy in this country by not having to wear a mask in the middle of a pandemic. Anyway, um, so uh, so it really isn't getting traction, but I always worry that this is like the next thing. You know what I mean? They, they hold back, and then this could be the next thing. And then the argument, of course, that somehow our tax system is unfair to the wealthiest. This is straight out of Ken Griffin's playbook, by the way. So uh, it's unfair to the wealthiest Americans, so we're going to have to raise taxes on the poorest of Americans. Uh, wow. Miles Kampf Lassen. Uh, again, we don't have a whole lot of time because I know you can riff on this one. But how deep do you think this notion is in the American psyche that somehow or other our tax system, which benefits the wealthy, is actually favors the poor? How deep do you think that goes? It doesn't just benefit the wealthy. It was designed by the wealthy and carries out their agenda whole hog. I mean, if you, it's, it, it's just, you know, on the face of our tax system, if you look at it, there's a reason that the richest people pay the least and that Donald Trump brags about not paying taxes because it was a system designed to be evaded by those who have the means to evade it. Um, and the ones that can't are the rest of us who, you know, face um, taxes every day. You know, you pay, you go to the, you, we live in Chicago, we, you know, go to the store, we're paying sales tax on everything. So especially, you know, all these right-wing it used to be the argument from the right that like undocumented people are not paying taxes. So therefore they, you know, need to be expelled from our country or, you know, pay some dividend or something, um, which is completely ridiculous. Cause just, as I said, you know, we're paying taxes all the time, like every day. It's not like a tax, the tax is just what you pay, um, in April on tax day, like taxes are, are ingrained in our, um, in our country. Uh, and taxes are meant to, continue an economic order which has a hierarchy and the way that that works is by maintaining um you know relative tax levels that end up hurting um poor and working class americans much more than they hurt those at the higher end of the income scale let alone corporations i mean we used to have a corporate tax rate uh in the 80s and now it's you know they're fighting to get it to like 35 percent and where it's you know it's been so skewed to as you said benefit the wealthy for so long that it's completely absurd to think the way we solve any of our domestic fiscal issues is through you know wringing more cash out of already beleaguered um Americans, and as it pertains to that Rick Scott thing, like they not only is it going nowhere, but you actually saw Mitch McConnell come out and just say, actually, we're not going to run on any agenda before the midterm. 
which is, you know, it's there's that right wing savvy. It's just like, you know, we see these Democrats are facing all the consequences for, you know, both the pandemic and rising costs and all this stuff. So that's just shut up and just, you know, hold out until November and then maybe they'll do it. You know, maybe they'll carry out Rick Scott's plan. I mean, th- that's the thing. If you'll remember, Trump didn't run on the Trump tax cuts. Right. Like that was just Republican um, orthodoxy put into a tax plan that he was happy to sign because it let him, you know, brag about it. But he didn't run on that. He ran on like Medicare for all, you know, and ending the wars, things that he obviously was never going to do. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't put it past Republicans to try to pursue something like that Rick Scott plan because that's that is their agenda is to benefit their corporate donor class while. Um, uh, making life harder for working people and then telling them that their real enemy is, you know, the undocumented worker and the, you know, um, person alleging, you know, police violence or something. That's like, you know, classic Republican politics 101. And this, even the Rick Scott thing isn't, it reminds me of Steve Forbes. Remember he ran, he yeah. ran on the flat tax. That was his whole thing, which again is regressive taxing. Like there's a reason that wealthier people should pay more is because they have more. And like, if we just tax everybody the same or make poor people pay more, we're only going to elevate the already futile levels of inequality that we, that we have in this country. So I think it's pretty absurd. I think they're, um, you know, it's, that's, that's the actual face of the Republican party. And that's why you saw this scramble with people like McConnell and other Republicans to throw cold water on it immediately because they don't want it to be seen, you know, and they, they want to wait until they can like sneak back into power and then carry out their agenda. But they know it's so unpopular that they can't actually run on it. Instead, as you said, they'll run on, um, uh, you know, Democrats want you to wear masks forever or something. Yeah. That's, going to be their whole plan yeah uh that's their that's their plan we began the show talking about it and we end the show talking about it yes that is their uh that's their strategy denounce mask wearing all right uh or mask mandates all right their attitude of course if you want to wear a mask wear a mask uh miles uh before you go why don't you tell us about uh, any interesting articles we should know about that uh been recently published in in these times of course, yes. Um, we will have um, coverage of the Ukraine-Russia um, conflict uh, coming up on our website, so check that out at inthesetimes.com. Um, we also have a great piece by my colleague uh, Sarah Lazar that I edited yesterday. She's been a guest on the Ben Jarofsky show on an issue we've been covering uh, quite a bit at in these times, which is kind of vaccine apartheid and how um, there is a huge um, global gulf in terms of access to vaccines. Um, and she actually got a little scoop um, through getting um, uh some information from negotiations over this TRIPS waiver, which is going on to determine, you know, uh, how countries in the global south can access vaccine information. You know, we've, we've seen the U.S. Um, and the Biden administration suggest openness to some type of a waiver to allow for other countries to make um, mRNA vaccines and other types um, from, and without having a patent to that information, basically, to make it uh, open source of some sort. Um, but at those same negotiations, not only is there resistance to that from the EU being led by Germany, which has kept that, you know, the fact that, like, 80% of Africa is still unvaccinated because they don't have the technology, but also even within the realm of those negotiations, um, 
countries across, uh, you know, the EU as, as well as the U.S. have opened, uh, have suggested openness to making sure there's a carve out for um, therapeutics and uh, other types of uh, and tests and other things that would be useful, you know, to stopping the spread of COVID-19 because those are massively um, profitable uh, uh you know, sources of revenue for these pharmaceutical companies because they, you know, make huge amounts of money off of the pills they're selling and the test kits they're selling. So they're trying to um, keep that out. And so Sarah found, um, got access to this document, which um, revealed some of that. So that's definitely a fascinating story and something that I don't think has been getting uh, quite enough attention um, as we are still, you know, it's a global pandemic. It needs a global solution. And so um, that's going to, you know, it's going to be critical to get as much of the world vaccinated as possible. So Sarah's been great on that beat so yeah definitely check that one out at inthesetimes.com all right very good Sarah Lazar yeah I should bring her back and talk about that uh, talk about cynicism man it didn't get more more cynical than that uh, <laughs> making money off of vaccines means you have to limit uh, the access people have to vaccines oh well sorry Africa uh, all right Miles very cynical depressing show uh, so let's close with something a little uh, on the bright side uh, that feeds, uh, makes it a little easier for me to go around my day, and that is my beloved basketball. I don't know what I would do without it in this days and age. If I uh, just talk about uh, the conflict, the carnage in the world without uh, basketball. So last week, or I guess it's Sunday, or the NBA unveiled. Or they unveiled it before, but they uh, they allowed uh, their NBA. Uh, 75, the 75 greatest players of all time, the Basketball Association. I'm so old, I, I saw almost every single one of them play. Uh, and uh, so at the All-Star Game on Sunday, uh, everybody who was there, all the uh, 75 who were still alive, obviously, uh, who or could make it for whatever reason, uh, showed up. And it culminated uh, with uh, Michael Jeffrey Jordan, the last person announced, uh, sort of suggesting that he's the best of all. Got a thundering ovation from the crowd in Cleveland. A little surprising given uh, how uh, Michael Jeffrey Jordan has broken the hearts of Cav fans uh, down through the years. Uh, (laughs) Much to my delight. Sorry, Cleveland. Uh, so do you have any pet peeves uh, on this list or people that you felt should have been on the list uh, that were omitted or people who are on the list that you don't think should be there? Uh, are you happy with the 75? It was uh, iconic. It was a shot over Elo, right? It was, uh, yes. It was in Cleveland. Uh, yes. Michael Jordan. Um well, thank. I'm glad you asked me about the 75. I thought you were going to ask me about Enos uh, Cantor Freedom, who has been announced as a speaker at the CPAC conference, Conservative Action Conference, um, professional basketball player. Because was- he's going to denounce China. Let me guess. Uh, but not Putin. He knows. He knows on which side the bread is buttered. Go ahead. I, I- um- well, the, the one thing I will say is there's actually 76 names if you read all of them out. So that's a little, I call it 75 if you're going to do 76. Come on. That's my one main thing. Like, yeah, you're on. right, though. That's a good point. Come on, NBA. Just, um, you know, yeah, take one away. That's all. And yeah, I think there should have been somebody else added. The biggest omission, I think, is uh, Tracy McGrady. I think it's, you know, he was just, you know, such an incredible um, star and myself, you know, growing up in the 90s, uh, watching basketball, watching the NBA, of course, um, the Bulls second three P uh, team, but then continuing, you know, Tracy McGrady was an iconic player. And I think that shaped the style of so many modern basketball players now. So I think that was a little, um, 
ridiculous that he was left off, to be honest. Um, of course, I'm not as familiar with all of the old school um, players, so I can't, you know, people could argue that, you know, everybody else should have stayed on. But then, you know, if you're going to have 76 anyway, just make it 77. You know, and <laughs> T-Mac. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, that's kind of my, that, that, those are my main, th- I also think the whole, the way that they, I think they had like the top 50 vote on like the next 25 or something. I don't, I don't even know how it really yeah, the came election. together. <laughs> it's sort it's, of like the way they go about replacing an alderman in the city council. Nobody really knows the rules uh <laughs> but uh i my we're gonna do a whole show on this and i've assembled a, 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 a crew to talk about it of all generations again all these so because uh, it's a generational thing like your generation would love t-mac that's that was the guy when you were in high school you know what i'm saying uh so i got some old young people in there but i got an old timer as well i'm the old timer um but my position is this. So I'm going to put this to the guests who come on my show when we talk about this. If you're going to suggest somebody go on, you have to remove somebody. I'm going to play by the rules, even though, as you pointed out, they already broke the, <laughs> they broke their own rules. But when they said it could be 76 as opposed to 75. So I'm going to play by the rules. Uh, 76, I'm going to write. So for me, the... The greatest omission, and this is me as an old guy who loves the Bulls since they were formed, is Chet the Jet Walker, the great forward for the Chicago Bulls, uh, played in the 70s and was such a key part of that 70s team that really established the Bulls on the psyche of Chicagoans and uh, is part of the reason they're still here. Uh, unbelievably, he wasn't uh, part of that 75 because before that, he had a great career with Philadelphia. and He was on one of the greatest teams of all time and won a world championship with Will Chamberlain. So... I just, I still can't get over that. And in order to divert my attention from all the misery of the world, I get riled up about this and have long, intense discussions and debates with my friends. And so, because my rule is if you add somebody, you got to take some money off. And so I've said right now, no doubt about it, cut off this love for the Lakers that is just too abundant in our country right now, okay? The love for the Los Angeles Lakers, your obsession with the Lakers, America. I think you got to question that. And James Worthy has to come off that list. So I, I, if I were the ruler of the NBA, which they would never allow in a million years, I would remove James Worthy and add Chet Walker. That would my first movie. So the challenge to you, young Miles, you say... Your beloved T-Mac belongs on that list. Who do you remove to make room for him? Go ahead. Well, I'll have to get back to you on that one. But I do want to <laughs> – I'll dodge it. Dodge. Yeah, I'll, dodge, I'll dodge that one. Um, but I just want to say, well, we you know, should thank the basketball gods because tonight our, uh, uh, our Bulls are coming back playing Atlanta, I believe. Um, and, you know, have a little bit of a new look. We might get a, a, a sight at Tristan Thompson, the newest Bulls acquisition. And he is an example. I just want to say this. I like this about the Bulls. But, you know, for so long, they've been kind of the hard scrabble, you know, blue collar team, even, you know, Hoiberg and Jim Boylan tried to position them that way. Now we might be going a little bit, you know, LA Hollywood ourselves here with the Bulls. We got, you know, Zach Levine from UCLA, obviously Lonzo Ball with the, you know, LeVar Ball family, which are, you know, a kind of LA royalty in their own way. 
Tristan Thompson dating Khloe Kardashian. We're probably going to get, you know, some Kardashians at the sidelines now at the games. And even like Vucevic uh, from USC um, and DeRozan, obviously, an L.A. guy from Compton. So our Bulls team was getting a little Hollywood itself. But, hey, as long as they keep winning, I, I, I don't mind it one bit. All right, I don't want to take a descent into Tristan Thompson's relationship with the Kardashians at the moment, but based on where that relationship is right now, and I admit I know way too much about the Kardashians, I'm not (laughs) sure we're going to see any Kardashian sightings uh, at the United Center. We're just going to have to make do with uh, who are our celebrities, Chance the Rapper, and occasionally, I think Kanye West, are you... and uh, I don't know if Kanye's ever been to a Bulls game. Make do a chance the rapper, and uh, and that uh, that's about maybe it. Chicago. Tom Skilling, maybe. Oh yeah, Tom Skilling. Uh, it was funny because back in the day, I was talking about this with Moreau, uh, celebrity at Chicago uh, Bulls games. This is how pathetic we are as a celebrity city. Was Gene Siskel, the movie reviewer? I'm like, that, oh wow, there's Siskel. It's not like Brad Pitt. We get the guy who talks about Brad Pitt. <laughs> it's like pathetic city we are. No, I love Chicago. All right, Miles, thank you very much. Uh, it was really great talking to you about uh, uh, what's going on in Ukraine and the politics of it here. It's given me a lot of enlightenment, so I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to us. Uh, for sure, and we kept it clean. So Yes, we did. Dennis, hear that? There we go. <laughs> All right, very good. Uh, I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, who just did that uh, squeaky dolphin voice, the pride of Alton, Illinois, uh, without whom the show would be possible. And as Miles can tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for DeMarvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. is not done. I don't want to make empty promises. I don't want to make empty promises. 